You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Let me reiterate what's been extended to you by Daniela, and that is a word of welcome. Uh, For those of you that this is your first time here with us at Grace Church, we are really glad to have you here. My name is Eric Bancroft, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church. Um, We're thankful to have you join with us in worshiping. We'll continue to do that now, even the preaching of God's word. Let me begin with a question, one for reflection. How many of you have had somebody disappoint you with something that they've done? Another question, how many of you have had somebody that you've looked up to really held in high esteem also disappoint you and do something contrary to what you thought they otherwise would do, at least in keeping with the reputation that they had with you and how you viewed them. I think in that first example, it's not uncommon to have people disappoint you. Um, Because the reality is people are like us and we are like others. We do things that we know that we shouldn't do, but sometimes we do them. And so when it's a, a sense of a peer in life who does something we wish they had not done, we find that to be disappointing. But it's when it's somebody that we look up to somebody that we hold in high esteem, somebody that we have a great respect for, when they do something that's contrary to what we thought of them, that's not just disappointing, that's disorienting, if not greatly discouraging. The question is why? Because when you hold people to such high standards, and sometimes appropriately so, and they don't meet those standards sooner or later, it becomes disillusioning. Begin to wonder, How many other people have I looked to that this has not been true for them, that I should be questioning? And even yourself begin to wonder if the standard by which I've desired to be myself, is that even possible? Or is this person sort of in front of me showing what's the point, we're all gonna fail eventually? The truth is no one is above temptation. Anyone can give in to that temptation. This is why I've said at different times along the way, even pastors who preach the gospel need the gospel. Well, we see that very lesson this morning, except it's not a pastor who will teach it to us, it's actual apostles, both by the instruction and sadly by the example. The earliest disciples of Christ They need to be reminded of the gospel as well, especially when they act in a way that seems to indicate that they have forgotten about that. If you would open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter two. We are working our way through the book of Galatians. I wanna encourage you if you have not been with us these last couple weeks to feel free to kind of catch up with us. The previous messages are available on our YouTube channel. You can find online just at gracechurch.miami. But we're continuing our study through this letter to the churches in Galatia, written by none other than the Apostle Paul himself. 
Paul is continuing in our text this morning in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 and following. He is continuing really his argument from chapter 1. And the argument basically is this, that the gospel Paul preached to them from the very beginning, he did not get from anybody other than God himself. It was indeed something that came from Christ. He states earlier that he couldn't have gotten it from Peter because he didn't even meet Peter until three years after Paul's conversion. And even then, he only spent two weeks with Peter. Nor did Paul receive his gospel from the churches of Judea because as it said in the end of chapter one, they hadn't even met Paul in person. They only heard about him and this reputation that the one who used to persecute the church is now leading others to faith in Christ. And it caused those Christians to glorify God of what he can do with, with submitted sinners to Christ. But then as we saw even last week, even after Paul was a Christian and had been so for 14 years, and he goes then eventually to Jerusalem, he presents the gospel to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. They didn't add anything to it as if Paul was somehow missing the mark as if Paul didn't tell the story completely. In fact, Titus, who's with him as a Gentile convert, Titus is being told by some Judaizers, Titus, you're not converted enough. You, as a non-Jewish person, need to be circumcised in order that you be accepted by God. And Paul tells Titus, that's not true. And the leaders of the church in Jerusalem tell Titus, that's not true. So not only did they not add to Paul's gospel that he preached, they also agree with Paul's assessment that nothing was missing from Titus because salvation from God is only through faith in Christ because of his grace alone. And now, with nothing to be added to the gospel that Paul is preaching, we begin to now see that the gospel stands as other over other church authorities even when they depart from it. In fact, really the main point of our text this morning in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14 is the following. Our lives should affirm the gospel, not contradict it. Our lives should affirm the gospel, not contradict it. Let's look at it first of all in verses 11 through 13. Look at what it says here, Galatians chapter 2. Paul continues and says, but when Cephas which is another name for Peter, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. We'll stop there for our purposes already. The first thing we learn about this morning is the confrontation. Verses 11 through 13 is about the confrontation when the gospel falls off the tracks. Because that's exactly what's happening here in the text. Now, it was not long ago, February 3rd of this year, 2023, 38 cars of the Norfolk Southern freight train carrying hazardous materials derailed in East Palestine, Ohio. This may eventually made national news. It has affected entire communities in the immediate geographic proximity. Over 45,000 animals 
have died from breathing in the toxic gas that's in the air. An overwhelming damaging effect. Several weeks afterwards, the National Transportation Safety Board released its preliminary report on the investigation stating, quote, this was 100% preventable. There is no accident. Every single event that we investigate is preventable, end quote. This is one of the reasons why these railways have to be regularly maintained. Because sometimes the problem is not even just with the cars, the train cars, their axles, their engines. Sometimes it's actually the very railways that they travel on. The rail damage, the joint damage. There's what's known as the rail creep as the railways constantly move. Friends, what was happening here in Galatians chapter two, the problem was not with the gospel. The problem was with the railways in which the gospel was traveling on the lives of the people that were communicating it, both through their words and through their actions. And it comes strong at us in verse 11. You notice how strong Paul says this. He says, when, when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. You're like, wow, what? that thing just got serious. I mean, if you go back to chapter two, verses one to 10, he speaks about the significance of interacting with, with Cephas. In fact, he's even referenced earlier in chapter 1. In verse 18, he talks about, again, going up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. And again, Cephas is another name for Peter here. And he speaks of him again later on in the text as he refers to the influential in chapter 2, verse 3. Or excuse me, verse 2. The influential again in verse 6, two different times. And then they're actually referred to as the pillars sort of the, the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, verse nine, when James and Cephas and John, who seem to be pillars, perceive the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. But now you have in verse 11, a scene change. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. It's not the same timeline. Some time has passed. Paul and Barnabas and others are in the city of Antioch. Now, let me give you a, a sense of a feel of Antioch. Antioch is a city with about a half a million people in it at this time. It's a metropolitan city, what today we'd use as a term, a global city. All kinds of ethnicities are there. About 10% of the population, about 50,000 people in the city themselves would have been Jewish. This is a a first kind of test case scenario, if you will, of a metropolitan church. People from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different languages, all coming together to worship the same God through faith in the same son, Jesus Christ. Now, today when churches get together for the first time, Grace Church itself is only a new church, four years old. Questions are asked. Well. What should our music be like? What should our dress be like? What time should our service be? What are some things that we should have as studies? What kind of ministries and programs? And these questions are answered, and sometimes they're answered kind of based upon who are you trying to attract? Who are you trying to appeal to? In fact, it's not uncommon for church planters like myself to be asked the question, who are you planting this church for? Who are you trying to reach? I would sometimes get asked this question irritatingly so. As if I was somehow trying to reach all the Brazilians in Miami, reach all the Cubans in Miami, all the Haitians in Miami, 
all the Lebanese in Miami. And here's my answer every time I get asked this question. The church is for sinners. We're trying to reach sinners. Good news and bad news, they're everywhere. So we want to put out the good news of Jesus Christ to anybody and everybody who will listen. But we know if we do that, it's going to be disorienting for many people. In fact, some of you perhaps feel disoriented here. You're young and you're used to there being only young people around you, your own peer group. Or you're old and used to being only old people around you. Or you're single and you're like, man, there's some other families around here. Or you have a certain ethnicity and you're like, wait, there's other ethnicities here. I can't place it at this church. Welcome to Grace Church. We hope you can get comfortable with us. Where in one sense, you can really say the only thing that brings us together is Jesus Christ. But the only thing that needs to bring us together is Jesus Christ. Because if we're in Christ, then we have so much in common. What's happening here is you've got this church in Antioch and Cephas, man, you gotta imagine if Cephas comes in town, how awesome that would be, right? I mean, you just gotta imagine he's a, he's a pillar. He is referenced three different times in Galatians chapter two, verses one to 10 as influential. I mean, today we have our famous preachers, right? Our well-known published authors. You might know them as John MacArthur. You might know them as John Piper. You might know them as Charles Stanley. You might think of these different people in different generations that had big influences in people's lives. Come into town. Cephas, Peter, comes into town. And it's shocking what Paul says. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. You're like, that just got serious. I didn't, I didn't welcome him. I didn't greet him. I didn't say, hey, we need to have a conversation. I opposed him to his face. I mean, this is like WWE apostle style. <laughs> this just got serious. What, what in the world happened? How do we go from greeting to confrontation? It says he stood condemned. That's why. Well, what happened? What took place? What took place is what it describes in verse 12. For before certain men came from James, he, being Peter, was eating with the Gentiles. What does that mean? All right, let me set you the scene here for you. So a Jewish person at that time who's committed to Judaism not as a Christian, but in the old dietary laws of Judaism, is going to restrain from or refrain from having any interaction with somebody who is not Jewish. So just to let you know, if you are not Jewish here today, you are known in the Bible as a Gentile, also at times referred to as a Greek. You're like, don't call me a Greek if I'm not a Greek. Zach is like, that'd be the greatest thing ever to be called a Greek. The idea here is he is saying, listen, Jews and Gentiles, they do not go together normally. And normally what that means is that they would not in any way have their time together at a meal because a meal was not just a time to kind of be replenished physically with food so you can get back to your work. A meal was a time of hospitality, a time of relationship. It was a time of togetherness. We understand this a lot of our cultures. If we want to be together in relationship, we say, come eat with me, come break bread with me. Let's share a time together. It's not just what's on the menu. It's like, I want you to be a part of my life. For a Jewish person, they not only would not 
eat the same food with them, they wouldn't even necessarily at times be with them. Now, there are some ways at some times in which some Jewish people would eat alongside of a non-Jewish person, but they would never eat the same food and they would never use the same dishes. Because I cannot have your food touching my dish because it's unclean. Peter, though, he knows better. Like, how does he know better? Turn your Bible back to the book of Acts, chapter 10. Peter was discipled by the Lord. Look at Acts, chapter 10. Let's jump into verse 9. It's a lengthy section, but it's important you get the context or appreciate what Paul said in Galatians 2. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Verse 17, now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear what you have to say. So he invited him in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And the following day they entered Caesarea. Cornelius, remember now, he's, he's not Jewish, he's a Roman centurion soldier, was expecting them and called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So, when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why you sent for me. Verse 30, and Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. 
So I sent for you at once and have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand. Here it is. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went down from doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed to God by God to be judge of the living and the dead, to, all, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Friends, listen to me, here's the deal. This is an argument from the lesser to the increasingly greater. In Acts chapter 10, Peter has a vision from God about food. He's hungry and God's like, here's all this food, you can have it. And Peter's like, oh no, oh no, I'm faithful as a Jew. I only eat the good stuff, not the bad stuff. And God's saying, listen, don't declare bad what I've declared good, it's all made by me. But the point is not that Peter can start eating bacon now. Well, that's gotta be pretty monumental if you ask me. He'd been missing on bacon at this point in his entire life. I guarantee you he made it for lost time. Wouldn't you? It's not just that he can start eating more food now on the buffet line. It then moves into the next part of the conversation, which is really leading him into a conversation, going over to a centurion's house. A centurion is not a Jewish person. Not only are they not a Jewish person, they're assuming an enemy of the Jewish people. The Roman rule is occupying Israel. They're the invading force. And God is saying through the vision of food, listen, I'm saying don't declare this man unclean. I've not declared him unclean. I've made everybody here. But this isn't just like, hey, let's get along now, racial reconciliation. It moves to the greater argument he is making here in the text, which is the gospel, not just the food. The gospel is for everyone. God created everyone and everyone has a purpose in God's mind that everyone might hear the gospel. Now here's why this is so monumental. Peter knew that. Galatians 2, Peter forgot that. Or did he really? You go back to Galatians chapter 2. You see what it says there in the text. He was eating with the Gentiles. That's not the problem. The problem is when, beginning of verse 12, these other people show up. It says, these certain men came from James. Now, interestingly, James, who's referenced earlier in verse 9, is one of the leaders in the church. These people are not indicative of James's theology. They're just new Christians who are still being tossed, if you will. As it says, fearing the circumcision party, fearing the Jewish people, it says in verse 12, Peter, when they came, he drew back and separated himself 
fearing the circumcision party. Peter lost his bearings. He forgot who he was, forgot what he believed, and he forgot who he was living for. December 17, 2008, Scott Bolzen was at work in the bathroom and he slips. The problem for Scott is when he slipped, he hit his head. The last thing he remembered is his feet going up in the air. Hits his head so hard he gets a concussion. Not uncommon to have a hard hit like that, create a concussion. The problem for Scott though was he couldn't remember anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything. Now, a hard concussion like that, people are told your memory loss is not uncommon. It'll start to be regained. It'll start to come back to you. Just give it some time. Your brain's recovering. It's gone through trauma. Here's the problem, though, for Scott. He's 46 years old at the time. He couldn't remember that he was the owner of WestJet Aircraft, the number one charter company in Arizona. He couldn't remember that he used to play for the NFL, specifically for the Cleveland Browns. Do you think that'd be something you want to remember? But even more importantly, he couldn't remember that 26 years earlier, excuse me, 24 years earlier, he had married Joan, his wife. That they had three kids, one of which had passed away. They were adults now. Couldn't remember any of it. And here's the thing, it never came back to him. From this single incident hitting his head, the brain scan later showed that no blood was flowing to the right temporal lobe of the brain. He had retrograde amnesia, which erases memories prior to an injury. One of the most severe cases on record and likely irreversible. He was not mentally impaired in any other way, able to still form new memories, but couldn't remember anything in the past. Friends, what you see here with Peter is a common problem for many Christians, retrograde amnesia. When Christians forget who they live for, when Christians forget who they desire to please, when Christians forget who paid for their sins and they're more worried about the people in front of them than the God who has saved them. It says it right here in the text. Look at what it says in verse 12. It says, he feared the circumcision party. Now, so that we're not inclined to throw Peter under the bus here, this is a challenge for every single one of us. The challenge is recognizing that we are tempted in the same way. The situation for Peter was not a slip and fall. The situation for Peter was a look and see. The problem is not just Peter, though. The problem gets worse. Look at verse 13. It's not just the example. It's not rather just the thing he did. It's the example he set for others. Verse 13. The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas 
was led astray by their hypocrisy. Unbelievable. The example is such that it led others to follow Peter's example. The reason I've titled the message today what I have, when good apostles go bad, is because of the reminder that even someone like Peter could get it wrong. Notice earlier in chapter two, go back to chapter two, verse one. It says, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of the revelation set before them, though privately before them who seemed influential. This would have been included Peter. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Goes on later to talk about how they gave him the right hand of fellowship. So here is Peter in one scene affirming the gospel that Paul is preaching and in another scene undermining the very gospel of the actions he's committing. In one scene protecting Titus from a circumcision act that he does not need and in another scene drawing Barnabas away into following his example. It's a tragic reality that happens how others can be led astray. So if that's the confrontation, let's look secondly now at the correction. The correction. It started in verse 11 when he says, I opposed him to his face, but now look at verse 14. So when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all. The question here you have to ask is, did Paul get a little amped? I mean, if you have a consistent reading of the Bible, we've gone through the Gospel of Matthew ourselves here at Galatians, I mean, here at Galatians, here in Miami at Grace Church. Did Jesus himself not say in Matthew 18, hey, if you see someone in sin, you should go to them privately? Is Paul involved in some type of public shaming of Peter? Paul, I appreciate the zeal, but you really went about this the wrong way. You're just shaming Peter. This makes a, maybe a declaration of your own self-righteousness. You should have taken a different approach here, Paul. But it's actually not what's happening in the text. This is a different scenario. The public rebuke was justified because Peter's sin was public and his sin had public consequences with others following his example. So he needed to correct Peter where the problem originated from, and he needed to correct all the others who had followed the wrong example. By talking to one, he was talking to all the rest. They all needed to learn of what they had done that was horrific. It wasn't simply that they put away their bowls of pork and beans. It was that they actually undermined Acceptance with God is based on what you do or what you eat or what you don't eat or who you are with or who you are not with in such a way that that's based upon what you do. What we see here is this public rebuke shows clearly from what we see earlier in chapter two, God shows no partiality, what it says in verse six, and clearly Paul shows no partiality either. What's the challenge here? Well, verse 14 puts it clearly for us. It's conduct not in step with the gospel. This is the heart of the text here. 
It's not about the personalities of Peter and Paul. Those are the ones just writing about it and the ones demonstrating it. The heart of the issue is anyone who lives in such a way that undermines the gospel. Notice what he says here in the rest of verse 14. He says, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, he's got no problem with, and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Peter became more concerned about what others thought than what God thought. I mean, just think about this as a lesson for you and I to remember in the days ahead. When your fear of man becomes greater than your fear of God, it's, not only, it's only a matter of time before you deny the gospel with your life or with your lips. I'll read that to you again as you have it on the screen. When your fear of man becomes greater than your fear of God, it's only a matter of time before you deny the gospel with your life or with your lips, by what you do or what you say. Does this make sense now why back in chapter one, verse 10, Paul was so concerned about not seeking the approval of man? Look at verse 10 again of chapter one of Galatians. He says, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Peter had retrograde amnesia for a moment. It was more concerned about pleasing others than he was about pleasing God. And Paul saw it and he confronted it because it was undermining the gospel. For those of you who are non-Christians that are here, you might think, understandably you might think this way, that the greatest objection you have to Christianity is the hypocrisy you see with Christians. Hypocrisy just by general definition and understanding that what one says to do, they don't do themselves. They are therefore a hypocrite. Sometimes perhaps even for you as a non-Christian, you might use this as kind of your get out of accountability card. Like, hey, don't worry about me. Why don't you worry about yourself? Well, let me just say at the outset, the Bible does not try to in any way cover up hypocrisy. It's not happy with it. God's not pleased with it, but it does address it. What I want you to understand here in the text of Scripture is that God's not trying to cover out hypocrisy. He's actually trying to expose and correct it and deal with it. The problem is not is hypocrisy present. The problem is it willing to be acknowledged and be turned from, known as what the Bible would call repented of, to turn from it. So here's something you should be very, very clear about as you think about Christians if you're not a Christian. Christians never make the claim, and if they somehow gave you the impression that they do, then you've misunderstood them. Christians never make the claim that once they become Christians, they stop sinning. They would wish to. They desire to. They want to be honorable to God and be holy as God is holy. But the reality is every Christian, including myself, is continually pressed with ongoing temptations. In fact, in some regards, we're actually more aware of them than before we were when we were not Christians. The question is, what do Christians do about it now that they're aware of it? Do they actually respond, convicted by their conscience and the revelation of God's word, or do they kind of deny it? So if you're not a Christian and you see a Christian in sin, you're welcome to ask the question, hey, I'm just confused why you say you believe this and yet you're acting like this. 
What you should find with that Christian is a willingness to concede the point and a desire of theirs that maybe you're not aware of to change. But here's the kicker. At no point does the Christian believe God will accept them for maybe the reason that you still think God will accept you, which is you hope to be good enough. You know, better than somebody else around you. Enough that God can see and go, well, they meant well. They tried enough. They got no sort of good points with me. And so I will, I will sort of accept them. I will forgive them. I will grant them eternal life. That's not at all how God works. God is holy. And because of his holiness, he has a perfect standard of righteousness. The problem is no one can measure up to God's holiness. That's why he had to send his son, the only qualified substitute, to live like none of us have ever lived and to die as a substitute that all those who put their faith in him and only in him alone for the forgiveness of their sins would be forgiven. And Christ's crucifixion and his resurrection three days later shows it's accomplished. So for those of you who are not Christians, friend, the question is not do Christians sin? The question is, what do you do about your sin? The Christian will concede the point with embarrassment at times. They do not do the things that they wish they did. And at times they do the things they wish they did not do. Paul, the writer of this very book in Galatians 2, says this himself about his own life in Romans chapter 7. The question everybody in this room has to address for themselves is not what are others doing, it's what am I believing? Is my faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of my sins? Or am I putting my hope and trust in any other place? This is why Paul was so concerned for Peter. He's like, Peter, you're acting in such a way that you're undermining the truth of the gospel. It's not in step with it. Think of the lessons we can learn from this. First of all, well-known leaders can compromise the gospel by undermining it with their actions. Well-known leaders can compromise the gospel by undermining it with their actions. This is why you never want to stop praying for your elders in your church, for other leaders in your life that you've appreciated. No one like gets like the 20-year mark of the Christian life or gets to some level like, well, they're just going to be good. The challenge, the temptation is always before us, no matter how long we've been walking with the Lord, no matter how much ministry that we have done, no matter how many sermons that we have preached, no matter how many books have been published, no matter how many years of marriage there have been, no matter how many people have been discipled and evangelized, nothing can keep someone from the temptation to undermine the gospel with their actions. This means that we should even be humble ourselves and not be disappointed. I think sometimes people put too much hope in their leaders as almost being mini saviors. Something more tangible, something more present, something more real. Friend, there is only one Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Everybody else turns to the same Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. Second lesson we can learn from this, no one is outside the temptation of the fear of man. No one is outside of the temptation of the fear of man. To adjust our words and our behavior in order to get other people to like us and accept us. That's what a fear of man is. I mean, do you understand that? Like, it's a temptation even for preachers. Like, to preach a sermon that will make you go, hey, I like him. I want to come back. I want to bring my friends. He makes me feel good. He's funny. He's super good looking. 
I'm sorry, I was just having a moment there. <laughs> no. The reality is, we need to recognize every single one of us is tempted by what other people think of us. We've talked about this before as a church. It motivates us in the most corruptible ways from the clothes we put on to the words we use, to the jobs we take, to the words we say, to the cars we buy, to the apartments we rent, to the activities we take up, to the reasons we work out, on and on and on it goes. The fear of man is not just a temptation for insecure teenagers who are trying to navigate their social environment for the first time. It's also for grown men who have cut off ears of people who have come at their savior. Peter. Third lesson, our example influences others for good or for bad. Our example influences others for good or for bad. I mean, this is just true in the negative sense in which you see Peter, how he led other people astray, but it's also true in the positive sense. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Philippians chapter one, or excuse me, chapter three, verse 17. Philippians 3, 17, Paul says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the question is, you and I to ask by way of personal reflection, what kind of example am I setting for other people? I mean, if you've got kids, this is like hits home hard and fast and regularly. And when they're young, it's like a whole new stage and you get teenagers, a whole new stage and you have adult kids, it's like a whole new stage. It's like, what do your children see in you that's worth imitating? In every area of your life, from your appetite for entertainment, your idea of music, your vocabulary, what you do with your money, what you love, how you talk about the people, how you think of your job, what do you talk about, think about the city, what do your kids learn from you? But it's not just parents who have got to think about this, every single one of us have to think about this. Every relationship around us, how are we encouraging or discouraging people in their walk with the Lord? Do you even know the Lord? I'm thankful to be reminded, as I said in Philippians 3, that if sin can be an example, so can goodness. So can desire for godliness. That's why sometimes people want to even just hang out with Christians, even if they're not Christians, because they're just like no one, like nothing else they've ever met. Jesus said himself in John 13, 34 and 35, by this they shall know that you are my disciples by your gossiping about one another. No, he didn't say that. He says by your love for one another. Your love for one another. People can say, man, these people love Christ. One of the things I love doing is getting to know people in their jobs, where they work, what they do. I'm just in, totally interested in like all of your jobs because I just love learning. And I love sort of like thinking about, like, well, you do something interesting, I'd love to do what you do. One of the things I've had to do over the years, have an approach to do is to do ride-alongs with police officers. Now, that has another whole level to it. Super entertaining. Now, partly intrigued by the fact that both of my parents at one time used to be police officers, but even now, just still intrigued by the idea of what's going on there. So, for example, I have ridden with my wife's uncle, Richard, here in Miami-Dade as a police officer in Miami-Dade and been with him when he's arrested crack dealers, taking them to jail. 
That was like a live filming of cops. Miami-Dade style, 305. But I've also been with Jordan Granger in Indianapolis, who's one of the elders of the church. I used to pastor up there in Indianapolis, who was a police officer. And I got to go with him on a ride along where we served a warrant at night at midnight, bulletproof vest on everything. He's like, Eric, stand behind this tree until we clear the house and then you can come out. I was like, I might get shot. <laughs> How cool is that? The might part, not the getting shot part. And they go in and clear the house and they find the guy. And they're like, Eric, you can come in now. And I come in, I try to act like I'm an inspector or something. I'm not in clothes. I'm like, it's like in plain clothes. They're like all like, you know, they're, they're uh, uh, police clothing. But probably the best one, my most favorite one, was when I lived in LA. A friend of mine had to hook up with the LAPD helicopter division. Oh, that was legit. We rode in a helicopter, providing support to the police officers on the ground, chasing a gangbanger who had just done a drive-by. Again, I'm not glorifying in the crime, just to be clear. And there we are, and the gangbanger had ditched the car, had run off into the bushes and was hiding in the Hollywood Hills and could not be seen in the dark because there's no lights on the hills. Except the helicopter we were in had like that heat sensor radar and we could totally see him like he was just like waving at us. And he's just like, it was clear as day except it was nighttime. And then the, the guy in our helicopter was able to radio to them where to go and the officers surrounded him, found him and he was like, ah, oh, sucker, you thought you could run the cops. But as amazing all those experiences were to me, you know what stuck out to me the most? Was that both with Danelle's uncle Richard and with Jordan Granger, the elder up in Indianapolis, when they had both of the suspects apprehended and put in the back of the police cars and they were driving them to jail, you know what they did each time? They treated them respectfully. They were super kind to them. Talked to them as calmly as I'm talking to you. And they said, hey, you're kind of captive right now. No pun intended. It's a good chance for me to explain to you the significance of what's like having a life captive to sin and explain to the hope found in Jesus. I was like, man, that is like remarkable. Your adrenaline would be racing. You'd be a little bit angry. You'd be a little tired. And every single time they got him in the car and they started to tell him about Jesus. Here's the question. When someone gets with you, what do they walk away having heard? What do they walk away having seen? Will it be in step with the gospel, commending it, or contradicting it? I pray that the gospel will not be diluted through the life you and I live. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.